Hello, you're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I'm talking to the adventurer and explorer, Alistair Humphreys. So before we get into it, I hope you're enjoying the summer vibes. I have to say uh, I'm just full of pollen right now. So if I sound slightly different, slightly croaky or that sort of thing, then that's why. And um, because of that, I'm going to keep the intro to this pretty short and just get into the episode. Um, So um, Alistair Humphreys is a British explorer, adventurer. He has in the last few years and just wait for this list, right? Uh, He spent four years cycling around the world which is a journey of 46,000 miles through 60 countries and five continents. He has also walked across southern India, rode across the Atlantic Ocean, run six marathons through the Sahara Desert, completed a crossing of Iceland, and as you're going to hear, uh, more recently busked his way through Spain, uh, paying his way through busking, and the only catch is that he didn't know how to play the violin. Um, So a guy full of stories, also someone who is um, pretty famous online for coining the term micro adventures. You're going to hear all about that as well. And someone whose work life, a lot of it looks like, I guess, what we imagine escapism to do to look like if we work in an office, right? So if you work in an office, you probably have this kind of image of um, doing some of the fantastic things that, that Alistair has done as kind of like the dream. If I wasn't here, this is what I'd be doing. So you're going to hear a little bit about what it's like for that stuff to be your work, um, how some of, some of that stuff has a bit of a grind to it as well. Um, he's got some really interesting stuff to say about work-life balance, um, some really nice stuff around um, reflecting and uh, putting sort of regular times in your month to really think ahead and think behind and just full of um, really interesting stories and wisdom. So I think this is going to be a really interesting episode for you. Hope you're going to enjoy this. So let's get into it. We're we're down the line. So there's a couple of little glitches on this audio, um, but bear with it. It is definitely worth it. So here I am with Alistair Humphreys. Right. uh, We are rolling. I'm with Alistair Humphreys. How are you doing? I'm very good. Very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we're recording this down the line and I love that uh, we're going to talk about adventures and all of the stuff that you've uh, done around the world and all these just amazing adventures that you've had. But we had to wait for your Sainsbury's delivery. <laughs> yes, you weren't meant to say that. This is the glamorous life of an adventurer. So yeah, Sainsbury's have delivered. They, they had to replace <laughs> the pumpkin seeds with some other sort of seeds. Um but apart from that, I'm now ready to be Mr. Adventure Al again. Nice. Um, <laughs> so you can um, you can regale us with stories of starting fires from uh, bits of you know stuff that you find on the floor of the forest. But uh, we know that you've got secretly got plastic packaging in your fridge as well. <laughs> yes, far too much. Of it. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. But I think though, sorry, into I just to go on from that. I do think it's a important thing to to say sometimes is that whatever role people seem to be living on the internet, the reality is always as plentiful boringness. And um, (laughs) I I have a very, very boring normal life and then a a moderately interesting internet life. And the challenge is to try to keep as much of the interesting stuff in my life as possible in amongst collecting Sainsbury's deliveries and uh, paying my bills and things. Nice. Um, I, I I ran a, an Instagram channel for a little bit called um, No Filter, Just Real Life. And the idea was to just document the most mundane things that happen in the day. So it'd be like, here is me at the supermarket waiting for the person in front of me at the checkout. Just like, <laughs> just really kind of dull things. But I found it like a really useful way of kind of seeing beauty in some of those mundanities. And um and just kind of helping me to be a bit more mindful about certain things that I might have been frustrated around. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I might well pick that one up again at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's a good idea. Um, so let's start with um, one of your latest adventures. So you've just written a book called My Midsummer Morning. And um, I have just been watching a couple of YouTube um, bits about that as well. Um, so the story of this is just absolutely fascinating. And um, you're basically retracing the steps, of the, the steps of Laurie Lee. So should we start there? And um, you can tell us about your uh, your sort of origins of, of discovering the book by Laurie Lee and what that led to. Yeah. So Laurie Lee in the 1930s 
walked out one midsummer morning from his mum's house in a little village in the in Gloucestershire to go and seek adventure as young people have done for forever I suppose um, and he found his way to Spain he'd never been abroad before uh, he knew enough Spanish for to say please can I have a glass of water and that persuaded him that he was ready to go to Spain and he walked the length of Spain playing his violin to pay for his way and uh, he eventually wrote a very beautiful book about that adventure and I first read it when I was a student at university and I just thought it was beautiful it was it was very unlike the usual tough guy macho adventure stuff which I also um, love and it had uh, it just captivated me and I thought wow one day I'd love to go do a journey like that myself so um, yeah it's a really beautiful travel book and if you haven't read it I, I recommend you dip into it sometime it's not very long cool and um, your sort of adventure really starts with this with you taking on that mantle from Laurie Lee of kind of there with your violin literally kind of playing for your supper yeah um, so you went out there with no money no credit cards no backup plan and um living in spain playing music right yes yeah which uh, which all sounds like a very nice thing to do the problem however was that um i can't play the violin and <laughs> and actually one of the reasons that I did the trip was the very fact that I couldn't play the violin. So when I, I first read the book, Laurie Lee's book, and I thought I'd love to do that, but I didn't for 15 years. And the reason I put it off for 15 years was because I'm not at all musical and I, you know, showing off playing karaoke or dancing at weddings. I hate that sort of stuff. I hate it. Mm. So the idea of having to stand up and play in public terrified me and also i have no musical skill um so i'd probably starve to death so the idea was just far too scary uh, so i shelved the idea and then for 15 years i did all sorts of other adventurous stuff big adventures small adventures but trying to live adventurously and then i got to a point whereby i'd been doing adventures for so long so 20 years of big trips that i decided i needed to look a bit differently at what adventure meant to me at this stage in my life and that perhaps the best way for me to get back those early feelings of excitement and risk and fear and fear of failure and uncertainty, all of the good stuff about adventure, the best way I could get that these days was not by cycling to China, it was by starting to learn the violin and daring myself to try and walk through Spain for a month without any money. Uh, so I had seven months of lessons, um, which is not enough by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I, I was absolutely terrible by the time I began. And I almost chickened out because I was so bad. I just thought this plan is not viable. I'm going to starve to death and be laughed out of town. And this is the most stupid, terrifying idea I've ever had in my life. But I persuaded myself to just at least turn up and and give it a go anyway. So there's some lovely moments of jeopardy in the video that I watched where it's like, okay, two months to go and you're sort of, you know, <laughs> putting the, the, the bow on the... Is it the bow on the reed? Is that what you'd say for a violin? On the strings. On the strings, yeah. Um, and so you're putting the bow on the strings, yeah, of course. And so you put the bow on the strings and it's kind of making some pretty terrible noises <laughs> and do doesn't really sound like it's going to be good. And then, so this is like two months out, you know, three months out and you're like you can see that you're kind of visibly quite scared about uh how this is going to go and then there's a scene in the video where you unpack the violin in a little sort of spanish square for the first time um so just tell us what that felt like you've got a, f a few it's a very typical spanish square kind of scene which i love about spain is that old people sit outside you know it's what mm -hmm. we don't do um here in the uk so you've got sort of six or seven um, elderly people are kind of waiting in anticipation of uh, <laughs> hearing this busker they've never seen before. Um, how did that feel in, in that moment? Oh, it was terrifying. It was it was humiliating and embarrassing and frightening. And I'd pinned quite a lot on this. You know, I'd I'd, uh, I'd been practicing every single day for seven months, which I thought was loads of time, but I actually discovered is really barely any time to scratch the surface <laughs> for a violin. So I could play five. So I was, I was essentially, they, my teacher put me on the grade one music syllabus, like all six-year-olds around the world are on. So I could play five 
tunes of about 20 seconds, but pretty terribly. <laughs> and I stood there in this town square and those old people were all watching me expectant. I don't look at all Spanish. So I was clearly some random foreign guy with a big hiking backpack about to busk. So they were quite curious. And when I started to play, they just would look uh, sort of bemused or amused <laughs> and surprised and a little bit horrified. And I soared away in that plaza for hours without earning a penny, people just ignoring me or laughing at me or wrinkling their nose at me. And I just wanted the world to open up and swallow me up. And I was I was so angry at myself. I just thought, this is the most stupid idea you've ever had in your life. This is self-inflicted, idiot suffering. And uh, I hated the <laughs> entire experience. But I kept going because I didn't really have any other option. And after a few hours, I earned a coin. One of the old gentlemen from the bench gave me my first coin, which was just a moment of uh, relief and exhilaration, excitement. And I, I felt like the king of the world then. I was, well, I was now a professional musician. And the big, the big thing of it, of <laughs> course, was once you've earned one coin, then potentially you can earn two, you can earn three, you've begun, you've got started. And so getting that first mm. coin was absolutely critical. And from then on, gradually, my mood just changed from terror and self-loathing to just finding the whole thing hilarious and exciting and and the uncertainty of it all was thrilling. And it turned out to be an absolutely brilliant experience walking. I made it for a whole month from Vigo um, in northwest Spain to Madrid, funded only by my own musical ineptitude um and it was it was a wonderful journey wow um what was your backup plan so you had no credit cards or stuff like that with you presumably so what was your backup plan if if things really did go wrong uh, there was no backup plan and that was part of the point the backup plan would be I completely fail, which means, I don't know, I starve to death or I quit and somehow <laughs> go to the police station and say to them, um, please phone the British embassy and send me the bill, get me out of here. I have no idea. There was, a, there was zero backup plan. And, and that was part of the point. I wanted this to be fully committed, everything on this. I have to make this work somehow. Um, yeah, I think if there'd been a backup plan, I would have chickened out and taken it on that first day. Wow. Um such a cool story. And I, what I really liked about that was you were saying that this type of adventure, you know, where you're back into something that really scares you, is something that you are not feeling so much from the more typical adventures of cycling around the world and, you know, all, all the places that you've been and your, your list of, uh, you know, things that you've done around the world and, and, and places that you've visited and, and the sheer mileage that you've done cycling around the world on, on bikes, you know, um, would be the, the stuff that would scare everybody else. But presumably you just got to a point where you felt, I know how to do this. I know how to put myself into extreme situations to survive off a bit less food, you know, all the stuff that people listening to this would probably think that's the bit that's going to be uncomfortable. That became kind of normal to you, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if anyone does any job for 20 years, they hopefully yeah. become competent at it. And I, what I try to make myself do is rather than applauding myself for being competent um, and moving along happily, I try instead to say, hey, you're being a wimp here. You're just living in a lazy comfort zone. What you need mm. to do now is change direction, go scare yourself, shake things up, try something different. And I've done that at a few different times in my adult life. But and the the very earliest manifestation of that was deciding that so after university, deciding that before I got a proper job and settled down to life, I should go have one big adventure. Like a lot of young people do, you know, go traveling, go have an adventure. And I decided to dare myself to see if I could try to cycle around the world. Um, which I never thought that I'd actually be able to do because the world is massive <laughs> and it's really hard. Um, but I dared myself to set off. And to my surprise, I kept going for four years and I cycled um, 46,000 miles around the world, uh, spent my entire life savings of £7,000. So it was a pretty cheap way to live for four years on the road. And then when I got home from that, that the confidence and momentum from that uh, got me excited about more adventures so I then spent several years doing big things like uh, walking across India, 
rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, crossing Greenland, crossing the empty quarter desert, doing big sort of adventures like that. And all those years meant that when I got to Spain, the the fact that I had to walk 500 miles and that I would be sleeping outdoors every night and cooking on fires and washing in rivers, none of that bothered me. That was my day job. Mm, That was the easy part of it. And the adventure of this experience was the violin. Um, So my the way that I perceive adventures evolved over time as well. Wow. Um, curious how you, how you go from wanting to have an adventure after university to being an adventurer as your job. So <laughs> how, how does that happen? And um, for anybody who is sat there slightly jealously thinking, I would love it if that was my job, what do they need to do? So, so, uh, well, first thing you need to do is go and do a massive adventure, um, you know, to become, to do something that makes you interesting and remarkable as in someone, people would remark about you. So I think Mm. people often make the mistake of thinking, oh, I want to be an adventurer. Therefore I should start a website. Whereas if you want to be an adventurer, what you really need to do is go on a massive adventure. And people are often willing what's that what's that phrase about you you want to be the noun but you're not willing to do the verb yeah um, so yeah. yeah so i i sort of i guess i earned my spurs by spending four years on the road cycling through five continents and then i came home and i'd still then assumed okay now i'll get on with normal life but until i get on with normal life i'd like to write a book just because that interests me so to pay for my life while i wrote the book i just started doing hundreds of talks in primary schools just for small bits of money and um the talk started to go well so i started to do more talks and gradually got to the point where from talks and writing books and magazine articles i was able to live and also start to save up money for another adventure and then the cycle started to continue of go do an adventure come home with a really good story share the story, try and grow an audience, save up a bit more money, and then repeat. And uh, if you repeat that for enough years, eventually, perhaps you might get to the point where you can call yourself an adventurer, (laughs) even if you still have to collect the Sainsbury's deliveries. (laughs) (laughs) And a couple of things that you've done more recently, which are very timely for me, um, I love the idea of you did a walk around the M25. I want to talk about that in a minute. Um, and this whole idea of micro adventures, um, and I th- it feels like one of the things that you're really interested in is how to make adventuring more accessible to you know kind of everyday folk in everyday jobs. Um, and if I just for a minute class myself as as exactly that, um, so I've got two weeks in August where I'm going to be going off um, around Scotland, and I just kind of had this two week two week window had all these ideas of doing far-flung travel and you know staying in hotels and going to baseball games, which is a, a, a thing that I do fairly regularly and stuff like that. And, and I just kind of had this, um, I guess I had this kind of calling to just be on my own with a tent, just kind of uh, in wilderness. And I'd kind of never been to Scotland outside of Edinburgh, so I, that was kind of always on my list anyway. Um, so that's been really timely, just watching some of your videos um, and kind of making this stuff feel a bit more accessible to someone like me who I go camping every now and again, but usually when I plan a holiday, it, it involves hotels or Airbnbs or something like that. Um, so uh, just firstly, why is that an important thing to you? The, the idea of um, making these kinds of adventures more accessible and kind of smaller and easier for people to, uh, to, to sort of get at? Um, well, in, for, for quite a lot of years, they weren't. I mean, with the honourable exception of Laurie Lee, who was this bumbling young guy who went on his first adventure, most of my adventure heroes, when I was um, trying to learn about or trying to summon up the courage to go on my first adventure, most of what appealed to me was the ridiculously hardcore, epic, saw-off-your-own-fingers uh, kind of yeah, yeah. crazy men and women doing mad stuff. And I loved that elitism of expeditions trying to be tougher than everyone else and harder than everyone else and really that was what appealed to me in the first place i think i think i was uh well i know i was uh, fairly 
insecure about myself and unconfident and had a bit of a chip on my shoulder and I wanted to try and stand out. So for years, I really believed that adventure had to be properly hardcore and that two weeks in Scotland was pretty pathetic. Um, <laughs> so so that was my, my uh, the way I did went for years um, and they were great times. But I gradually, as I started to do more blogging and writing and speaking to audiences, I became aware that Loads of people love the idea of adventure and travel, but very few people actually do it. And I started to notice that there were lots of barriers that stop people. Um, some of them are practical barriers, you know, a lack of time or a lack of money. Most of them, they're in our heads, so sort of perception that people like me don't do stuff like this, or I'm a normal person, not an adventurer, so I can't do it. And those, they, they, all those barriers started to interest me. So I decided to see if I could get all the stuff that I loved out of adventure, the, the wilderness, the simplicity, the challenge, the freedom. Could I get all of that stuff and somehow shrink it to make it more accessible, to break down the barriers to adventure? And that led to me starting to do what I called micro-adventures, so deliberately small, local, cheap, simple manifestations of, of bigger trips uh, much closer to home. And it's been brilliant. It's uh, what what I've enjoyed about it was that people really responded to this, and it was very useful for people trying to help them get out into the outdoors. And the reason I started doing that more was that big expeditions are brilliant. They're fun and they're very good for your personal development, blah, blah, blah. But they're inherently pretty selfish and pointless things. So it, it started to just feel nice that what I was putting out online was helping other people get out and have wilderness experiences so that that led to me starting trying to to share that my knowledge and things more um and a benefit for me has been that from the early days when i thought that britain was small and boring and rubbish and that if i wanted adventure i needed to head to alaska or kazakhstan i've discovered how beautiful and wild Britain is. Um, mm. And in terms of what you're going to discover, I certainly discovered that Scotland is not about Edinburgh and Glasgow and that the, the good stuff begin, begins north from there. The big, huge, empty expanses of northern Britain are so wild and so beautiful. Um, and I've really now started to love having small adventures in my own country. It's been uh, quite an epiphany for me. Nice. Um, tell us about the M25. So for people outside the UK, the M25 is the orbital motorway around the outskirts, the, the sort of edges of London. It's often where people draw the line of London somehow, isn't it? You know, if you're outside the M25, you're definitely not in London. Uh, and it's a very boring road. So <laughs> tell us how that came about for you as a thing to interact with, to adventure around. Um, usually it's the place that everybody avoids, right? Exactly. I So when I was trying to think, how can I try and make adventure more accessible? The first exercise in that was to try. I realized that a lot of the kicks I've got out of adventure have been the same, whether I've been in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, on the ice caps in the Arctic, or in the Atacama Desert. It's the same stuff you're getting. Therefore, perhaps I could get that wherever I was and that maybe all of this really was just in my head and it was mostly adventure was about the attitude with which I um, approach things. So in which case I should, in theory, be able to have an adventure anywhere. So to prove that point, I decided to do the most boring adventure in the world in the least adventurous place I could think of and go somewhere everyone hates, the M25. So I, uh, I followed, and I, I thought it was a bit of a ridiculous idea, similar to Spain, I suppose. But I decided to give it a go. I followed my nose around London through just cross country, trying to keep as close to this big motorway as I could um, through suburbia and commuter towns, basically. And a few things happened. One thing was that time and again, walking around the M25, I kept thinking to myself, this place, this trip is exactly the same as cycling around the world. I just kept having comparisons in my head. It was a circular journey. It was a bit of a physical challenge. It, I was meeting good, kind, interesting people, just like you do when you're properly traveling. Um, and I was finding that in between all these boring towns, there are still pockets of wilderness and beauty. And, and I was learning that 
it's about the way I look at things, really. I can either look at all the suburban towns and think, oh, that's a bit rubbish, or I can notice that, hey, there's a small little woodland. And if I sleep in that woodland, the birdsong and the foxes, it'll still feel pretty wild. So that was my first foray into the idea of micro-adventures and to try to try to s- s- explore the idea that living adventurously is mostly about the, the attitude that you choose to choose to go at things with rather than having to go all the way to the other end of the world to to have an adventure yeah and how long does it take to walk all the way around the m25 well it was more a case of how long we had available i did it with a friend and he uh, had a deadline so we had seven days to do it it's about the road itself is 120 miles but we were going cross country so we were getting up towards something about 200 miles in a week so it's quite a big long week of walking so it was actually quite a physical challenge to do um it was a ridiculous trip but i really really enjoyed it and it, it was actually a fascinating cultural and geographical and economical economics journey as, w- as well as just being trudging through fields and towns yeah, yeah yeah um and i'm just curious about all the minutiae of detail with this so did you did you ever eat in a service station on the m25 we certainly did. One of the great things about doing an expedition near the M25 is that you're never too far from a kebab shop or a chip shop or a builder's cafe for a cup of tea. It was January, so it's freezing. We, By the time yeah. we, we we went uh, clockwise from the Dartford Bridge, Junction 1, so by the time we got up near the top of London, about three quarters of the way around the circle, we set our sights on the South Mims service station. And by this point, we were knackered cold and really hungry so we trudged deep into the night to reach south mims and oh it's like a holy grail they've got lights they've got seats there's 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 radiators we could dry out our socks this is amazing so we had a south <laughs> mims feast and we enjoyed it so much that we um slept in bushes in the car park <laughs> that night just so that we could then wake up in the morning and also have a south mims service station breakfast before carrying on the expedition <laughs> wow it's the, the oasis the oasis in the desert and south mims service station and how much of that trip are you sort of carrying your own food versus looking for where you can buy food on the way we did we carried um sort of, i guess a day's worth of snacks and things and we we had a stove it was it was snow on the ground so it was cold so we had, we had a camping stove so yeah. we could cook some noodles and make a cup of tea at night um but it was it was pretty much you're never you're never too far from a shop uh, walking yeah. around london so the uh, the the logistical planning wasn't too bad on that trip nice um i don't know why i'm, I'm just intensely curious about the food because the other thing that i wrote down from before was um there's a video of you and a friend of yours kind of living off the land oh yes um and sort of doing all the the kind of bushcraft skills of you know starting fires from scratch and all that sort of thing and foraging for little nuts and stuff like that so um so tell us about tell us about that and how, how did that come about and um what did you learn from uh living completely uh off the land i think is it like a neolithic thing what was the i can't remember the the exact thing yeah. that was described in the the video but it's like <laughs> um living in a kind of neolithic hunter-gatherer right. way is that is that yes yeah so this was during my early experiments into micro-adventures. And I, I feel that one of the best parts about adventure and getting out into nature in the wilderness is to leave the modern world behind just because mm. we're all too busy and stressed and we get too many emails. So to turn off your phone, take off your watch and walk out into the woods to spend some time by yourself is a rare thing to do these days. And I felt the usual symptoms of detoxing of anxiety that I didn't know what time it was or boredom because I hadn't looked at my phone for five minutes and thinking how will the world cope without me answering an email for half an hour all those signs of which reassured me that what I exactly needed to be doing was to be wandering around the woods looking for some leaves to eat so it was an exercise in slowing down in simplifying and I think we could all get that just by walking out to our local wood, sitting down under a tree for an hour and daring ourselves to sit there for an hour without looking at our phones. So I think it's a good thing to do. Um, I also was interested in this idea of even in quite a small woodland, quite near London, you can feel that you are in nature. So if you're 
move, you know, you sleep when it gets dark, you wake up when it gets light. If it's windy, you get a bit cold. Um, that, that nature is, is actually around us. I think we tend to forget that quite often. Um, mm. I was yeah. helped in the exercise by doing it with my friend who is competent at things like foraging and fire lighting and stuff. If I'd done it myself, I'd have been really hungry and miserable. So he, he had the useful skills. And I was very interested how at first I was incredibly bored um, and incredibly hungry just because nowadays if I don't eat for about an hour, I start declaring that I'm starving. So it was really interesting how ill-equipped I was. But uh, over the first day, two days, three days, I started to slow down and become much more observant to notice things more and to just in, actually take some pleasure from the trying to do a simple task well. Like you're trying to build a shelter of sticks and pretty, just trying to concentrate on one task and do it well. Uh, these are all things that I'm hopeless at living in the modern world. So it's really a good experience to to do that with that guy. And I suppose it's um, that there's a danger sometimes that we look at nature as being a thing that we see on David Attenborough programs and we do feel quite detached from it. So, you know, other than, other than the sort of go, going and sleeping in the woodlands, like what, what are the other things that you feel like people can do, you know, just in their day-to-day lives that will help to bring back that um, awareness of nature? Yeah, I think it's a, a real big problem that we think nature is out there, that it's easy for us to forget that we actually live in a wild universe. A lot often, if we live in towns, you don't even see the stars. So um, I've been trying to g- get more nature into my normal, busy life. Um, and a couple of examples. One would be that um, I now have a, uh, a calendar reminder. And actually, this is a job for me to do this afternoon uh, that pops up on the first of the month telling me to go climb a tree so i've been climbing (laughs) i've been climbing the same tree it's a lovely oak tree really near my house um on the first week of every month this year and it takes me about five minutes to get there five minutes to climb the tree and then i climb the tree sit there have a look around and i and you notice how the seasons change you know in january it was all bare and cold now in june it's greenery everywhere so you know going there every month you notice the seasons change which i think we often forget about but it also is a brief pause to think ah it was a month ago since i was here how's my last Mm. month been and then perhaps Mm. to think forward ah what i what what am i going to do in the next month till i come here then i climb back down the tree go back to my computer and carry on with my uh, death by email so trying to squeeze small little things like that in um i've become a huge fan of uh, swimming in rivers so when when i driving along with my sat nav on i i treat my sat nav not just as a way to get me places but as an adventure seeking device because on the sat nav you see the the blue river approaching so as i'm driving along i <laughs> quickly look out of the window if it's a nice nicer uh, river i pull over the car pop go find my way down to it jump in the river carry on the journey just feeling wild and refreshed so i'm trying to do small little things like that on a a regular basis within the framework of busy normal life nice um do you find that you have times where you're more motivated by adventure and kind of seeking it out and other times where you're just like oh i can't be bothered to go and swim in the river today (laughs) um not really actually i mean quite often in winter time i look at the river and think I don't want to swim in there because it's yeah. freezing. <laughs> um, and only an idiot would do that. However, one of the great things of building up momentum in anything you do is that I've jumped in enough cold rivers now to know just how good it feels afterwards. It feels mm, great. Right. And actually almost the colder and more stupid the day, the bigger the buzz and the thrill you get afterwards. So I've I've, I've learned that a lot of these rewards overcome the uh, that brief bit of discomfort. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm, there's, there is more to life than jumping in rivers. So I'm quite happy also to sit uh, on a sofa and read a book for three hours and drink tea. So, um, yeah. but I think one of the reasons I chose to do that Spain trip though was because I started to get a bit jaded about so-called traditional big adventures. Yeah, I was trying to think, what should I do? Uh, should I cycle to China? Oh, already done that. Should I row an ocean? Already done that. And starting to get a bit flat about these wonderful adventures was an alarm call for me mm, that what I yeah. needed to do was 
change direction. Not completely, just a little detour, get out of that rut and veer off in a slightly new direction. I'm still heading loosely in the same direction in what I hope to get from life, but just by a slightly different course. Um, And I think those regular small readjustments are good just for shaking stuff up a bit. Yeah. Um, You talked earlier about how the big adventures, like ultimately you feel like there's a kind of selfishness to that and there's a pointlessness to that and there's a kind of crazy aspect to that. And I know you're a dad as well, so I'd love to hear about how doing those trips uh, impacts on your work-life balance and your home life and family life and and just how you think about that. (laughs) Well, on the simple practical scale, um, once you're a dad and you have to take your kids to school every day, that kind of gets in the way of cycling around the world for four years on your own being a carefree spirit so there's the I'm feeling i'm feeling that too <laughs> okay yeah so there's that aspect of it and then secondly was just my approach to things change i, I it's fine if you're a, a young single bloke if you want to go kill yourself not maybe your mum will be sad but it doesn't no one really cares uh, but once you <laughs> once, once you got once you got kids it just seemed um i w- the difference i noticed was that i still craved um adventure but i hated the idea of pointless risk and trying to balance those two things up as a so-called professional adventurer mm. is a, a difficult thing um and and then the other thing is just that enjoying the way that kids are so curious as, as you know kids just love doing adventure type stuff and that can be as simple as climbing a tree in your garden or um i've got a great thing uh, called a Kelly kettle that it's like a it's a it's basically a camping stove but it's the best way I know of introducing young kids to the dangerously messing around with fire in a in a slightly safe way uh, so Kelly kettles are great so you buy one of those and that with that you can just go to your local woods and get the kids to light a little fire make hot chocolate in the woods and come home it's so much better than just going to cost a coffee to get a hot chocolate on a, a weekend so just trying to do little things like that is a interesting part of it i think nice um and you told a story about you were in a little tent and um uh one of the people that you were with said uh look <laughs> at you being a terrible dad or something uh, <laughs> tell us about that so when i first early days of being a dad i was trying to be good stay-at-home dad uh, which is the right thing to do, I think. But I was also trying to be carefree, wild adventure guy and trying to be who I used to be and be who I should be now um, and trying to make both of those worlds work simultaneously. And it was a bit of a uh, disaster, really. But I went off, I was training for an expedition to the South Pole and we were training in Greenland and beautiful, wild we were up on the ice cap, um, completely remote place. I was so happy. I was out there with good guys doing something that was really tough. Uh, I felt privileged to be there. I felt that I'd earned the right to be there. And I was just so happy. Um, it was exactly what I wanted in my life. <laughs> and then that night in the tent, uh, my friend, um, he made some joke um, about... Yeah, as you say, wow, you, what a terrible dad you are being out here on this trip. And we, we were just joking away. And to my surprise and his surprise, it just made me burst instantly into tears. And I suppose it was just this sudden outpouring of guilt that here I was doing this thing, but it was very much incompatible with trying to be a present dad, not doing daft, dangerous stuff. So this... Um, this um, incompatibility of my two lives I found a very difficult thing to to reconcile and that was one of the things that that led to doing more micro adventures how can I still be this wild adventurous free spirit but still get home in time to pick the kids up from school so micro adventures have been quite a uh, helpful thing in my own life for that and I suspect because that applies to so many people who are all busy but still want to be doing stuff i think that's the reason micro adventures have grown in popularity nice um i'm really curious to know obviously on beyond busy we talk a lot about the the epidemic of busyness and how people often feel like they have uh this slight addiction to the idea of productivity and the idea that 
um, work-life balance is something that we're all striving for and, and, and never quite um, reconciling or, or getting to. So I'm just curious that obviously a lot of what you do as your day job, having adventurers, ha- having adventures big or small, are kind of often the things that people picture in their minds as what leisure or work-life balance looks like. And, you know, it, 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 it's kind of what people feel like when, when they've made it. So I'm curious about what anxieties you still face around the idea of productivity or the idea of work-life balance. Well, I think... Um, if that's not too small a question. <laughs> it, it takes a massive amount of work in order to make it look like you don't do any work. So yeah, in, right. in order to make it look like, oh, I'm an adventurer as my job. Wow, that sounds amazing. Involves huge amounts of spreadsheets and emails and mm. blah, blah, blah. So I am, you know, I am a fully card-carrying member of the overly productive. Uh, yeah, I'm basically the, the same. We're, we're all in the same, exactly the same boat. Mm. So I find it very hard to get that balance. Um I find it hard now because because I'm busy with family as well as work is but I also need to go do these adventures not just for my sanity and for my work life balance but because they're also my work. <laughs> so um and I, I don't get much sympathy when I say to people oh I need to go do this adventure because it's work people just think I'm going on holiday. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so I can't sorry I've forgotten what your question was now. So just interested in you sort of just in in exploring those anxieties that you may face around productivity and work-life balance and I guess part of the question is also just thinking do do the moments when you're on those adventures give you a different perspective um about the times when you're sat hunkered down doing the emails Um, yeah I mean I I go off and do these adventures for many many reasons but one one thing that's very important to me is perspective and uh, the perspective of pausing and often f- enforced pausing it's great when you go somewhere there's no phone reception to just pause and think for a little bit about what's actually important to me in my life and that's such a seemingly trite thing to say but actually is crucial 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 and often we're too busy to think that or we think oh i've just got to work for x months x years when i get promoted to this point then I'll be able to have a really nice work-life balance. But uh, that's you know, the, the our life is a sick is an accumulation of our days and our hours and minutes. And for me, being out on a local hill, away from everything, just for one night, um, is a great way of resetting that and remembering my priorities. So I think the 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 idea of micro adventures got more popular the more I simplified it. And I think the simplest manifestation of all of my adventure I, uh, things I try and do is trying to look differently at things. So we're all busy with a nine to five. So I start asking, what about the five to nine? You know, the at least hypothetical, theoretical 16 hours of freedom. What are we going to do with that? Are we going to use that time or just fritter it with more answering of emails? So what I've been trying to do, especially in the summer months, is encourage people to uh, head out one evening after work and go sleep on a hill. Sleep on a hill, turn off your phone, come back the next morning feeling, well, knackered for a start, but feeling uh, invigorated and refreshed and having just had a little bit of a different perspective. And I'm I'm very busy at the moment. You know, we've I'm, I've messed you around all sorts trying to schedule this interview. And that's why I have things like climb a tree actually in my work calendar just to remind me that, hey, you're not too busy to go climb a tree for 10 minutes. And if you actually are too busy to climb a tree for 10 minutes, then that's completely bonkers and you need to sort this out. So, um, yeah, yeah, so I think scheduling small, small little adventures is a really important thing to do. Love that. And the other thing I was going to ask you is um, the times, so you mentioned that when you were in Spain, so you through busking made 120 euros in a month. And obviously, you're you know sleeping in a tent and carrying your own kit and um, and eating cheaply and stuff like that. But presumably, when you do the the Sainsbury's grocery shopping and everything else in normal life, you're kind of you're in that nine to five spending money, and it almost like it almost feels like a different currency, probably in terms of how frugal you're able to be to survive, and then how you would normally spend in in, in a more of a kind of Western culture. So. 
interested on in how that just affects your your perspectives around money you know often we we think of money as being the you know the sort of necessary reason that we go to work or the necessary reason that we need to uh you know exist and pay the mortgage and all that sort of thing but actually you've presumably been in some situations where money is almost not necessary or it's 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 on a very different scale so just interested what you've learned from that and um any lessons for people yeah i've had quite an interesting um relationship with money um in when i wanted to do my first adventure so deciding to go cycle around the world i my the total of my worldly wealth at that point was seven thousand pounds uh, being a student which clearly is not enough money to cycle all the way around the world but i figured that if i got myself a proper job and started saving up till i had whatever a suitable amount was then i realized there was a big danger that real life would get in the way and then i would slip into the trap of just thinking oh just one more year and a bit more money mm. and then i'll go yeah so instead i chose to just go with only seven thousand pounds and see how far i could get so to make seven thousand pounds last for four years uh, required a fairly manic obsessive frugality um of just living basically like a tramp for four years, <laughs> but I made it on four years and it made me realize how much adventure and how much life I could get with not much money. Yeah. You know, those yeah. four years of my life were better education than anything I've done. They were the most vivid memories of my entire life and they cost seven grand. Uh, so I realized that either in life you can earn more money or you can spend less money. And those two things can both lead to exactly the same outcome of lifestyle. So that was that was me learning to be frugal. Then I start trying to become adventure guy. So I'm working hard trying to earn enough money just to pay for rent and bills and things. And gradually I work on t- into doing more speaking work and actually speaking now for uh, corporate audiences and conferences is my main source of income. And I feel very lucky now that I earn enough money from regular talks. I don't really have to think about money. I know that I get enough talks and enough money comes in so that I'm fine. I'm uh, living a perfectly uh, adequate life financially. It doesn't even ever cross my mind. So my relationship with money often now becomes about how I trans into my feelings of self-worth so sometimes people a company gets in touch and says we'd like you to do a talk and we'll pay you x and I, i'm outraged like what how dare you oh. and then sometimes <laughs> i get in touch and they give me loads of money and that just makes me feel great not because i really want or need the money just because it makes me feel important mm. it makes me feel that i'm doing well it, it really just makes me feel that oh, i'm i'm progressing in my career this is going well so so i noticed that effect and at times a lot of being an adventurer is essentially about showing off about yourself as you know i emailed you saying hey please have me on your show i'm amazing so there's a lot of showing off about yourself and uh but the direction i choose is up to me and i've noticed that the times in my life when i've tried to do projects either for fame or for money. Firstly, they don't usually work very well. And secondly, they don't make me happy. And then the times when I just think, oh, sod the money, I'm just going to do what I really want to do. Um, then that leads me to doing a, pro- a project that is filled with so much passion and enthusiasm and joy that actually it usually ends up earning me more money. Anyway, like the Spain trip, for example, that was um, um I earned 120 euros in the month, uh, which was a good reminder again about frugality. But on the back of it, I managed to write a book, which hopefully will earn me some cash. So, uh, but I, but I never did it in order to earn money. So I think my short answer would be that I'm very glad that I've had to be very frugal at times in my life to turn to teach me to care for and value money, and now. I'm in a position whereby I earn sufficient that when I start making life decisions because of money, they generally make me unhappy. Mm. Um, just one thing that I just want to pick up on uh, in that. So you were saying that, and I have exactly the same thing, you know, we get the email from someone who wants you to speak somewhere and it's like, and you, you know, you, you have that little moment of just like, how, how dare they, How dare uh, you? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and actually often the, 
the level of endorsement in you is the same whether someone is working with a big budget constraint or a small budget constraint, right? So sometimes there's actually nothing personal at all. But so the ones where someone comes to you and says, hey, I can offer you this much and you feel really good about that and you kind of notice that uh, kind of boost the ego of, you know, there's a, there's a kind of self-worth aspect to this. So is it not tempting to say yes to those because of the money. And then the other thing you were saying was, was then about uh, almost like the opposite to that, which is if I don't care about the money, if I'm not thinking about the money, that's where I know that I'm going to have a more fulfilling experience. So how do you sort of reconcile those two things? And maybe uh, I guess the question is, uh, is, is there a danger sometimes that you say yes to something out of flattery um, that you don't necessarily want to do? Um, yes, yeah, so there's two two aspects there. One is, so the speaking work that I do um, is is one chunk, and that's basically the majority of what pays my life. And there, that's when someone gives me lots of money and I say yes to that, partly because it's lots of money and partly because it's flattery. And then the cheap talks that I do are more done through choice of thinking, oh, this is an interesting mm, right. thing to yeah. be part of or a worthwhile thing. So, so that's one aspect of it. In terms of chasing money to make me happy, that's a different thing. That's for generally, so an example would be a few years ago, I tried to make a micro adventures TV series. So I went to endless meetings with the BBC and God knows who chasing to make a TV series. And it was a right old pain. <laughs> it dragged on and on. And eventually it got to, we made a pilot episode and eventually it failed. Ah, it was so annoying. But I, as I took the train home from the failure meeting, I realized that actually I was relieved because I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be somebody who walks down the street and everyone recognizing me. But the reason I was trying to get on telly then was to get famous and to get money. And none of that I realized had been making me happy. So the rejection, I suddenly felt this liberation of, oh, well, instead, why don't I just start making my own little films putting them on YouTube. And um, and those have actually proved, firstly, I enjoy them, they make me happier, but also they've spread the word a lot about what I do. And I've ended up selling lots of books because of those little films, but it's, mm. but it's something that, uh, that I enjoy doing. Um, sorry, I've forgotten what your question was again. No, no, that's, <laughs> I, th I think you've answered it. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and I guess the final thing we've got to talk about, um, which was in your first email to me is, um, your love of Leeds United. And I have to kind of give you an apology <sighs> in the Aston Villa. I was hoping you'd forget forgotten <laughs> So Aston Villa got up through the playoffs and, um, Leeds kind of blew it. So, uh, what happened? Leeds threw it away. They <laughs> choked under pressure. Gosh. Um, uh, when I was cycling around the world, I always said I would trade all of this to play for Leeds United just once to be a professional sportsman. And uh, I've, I love, you know, I'm a sucker for professional high level sport and also for Leeds United. I love that world for all, for many, many reasons. But one of the reasons that I ended up going into adventure is because I'm uh, incompetent. I would, I would never get picked even mm -hmm. for Leeds United. So I've got no skill. And what I love about adventure is it's just a route where I am the gatekeeper, similar to not doing TV, but doing YouTube. There's not a gatekeeper saying you can't come in. It's just me choosing the path I want to go, doing things that I want to do that feel important to me and figuring out a way to do that. So I, I enjoy the lack of gatekeepers to that, mm. but I still would trade it all for a uh, to play cricket for England, I think. I mean, what's interesting about that is we've probably all had, and I, I was a similar level of footballing competence at school <laughs> where what happened is everyone, do you remember those times on the school field or the school playground or whatever, and, and it, uh, everyone lines up and then two people pick teams. Yes. And yeah, that sinking yeah. feeling you get, which is probably, when you look back on it, for people like me that were always, I was always like, I was never last pick, but I was like second or third to last. I, was always like, <laughs> okay, I could yeah. always take some solace in the fact that there was at least one person picked after me but i was always that sinking feeling when you, you see someone else get picked you're like i think i'm as good as them surely but you know clearly yeah. not objectively when uh, when everyone else is picking but it's that moment isn't it where it's probably the, one of the first instances that you have um you know kind of socially that you then start to look at that stuff professionally later on of like you know comparing yourself to other people and and kind of realizing that there's a kind of pecking order to each skill or each thing that you're doing or whatever 
Um, but I love that concept that you can take that and sort of turn that around and say, how can I find the things where I don't need to wait to get picked? And, yes. you know, some, and you pick yourself. And uh, someone else doesn't have a say over this. It's all down to me to, uh, to put myself in that situation. I think that's amazing. Well, if you, if you want to know what was the fuel for the fire for me spending four years cycling through Siberian winters and Sudanese deserts, angrily plowing on on my own, uh, you can pretty much pin it all down to uh, getting picked last in the school playground. <laughs> I was even after Graham, I was even after Graham Alcott in the school pecking order. That's how, <laughs> that's how many chips I have on my shoulder. Love it. Uh, and I guess the last question I need to ask you is um, what's next? Because it feels like you've had this um, incredible career in terms of the adventures that you've done. And then you've done something quite different with um, my midsummer morning and the uh, playing the violin around Spain. Uh, what are the two or three ideas in your head for kind of next adventures and particularly thinking about how that might inspire um, people like me who I'm kind of sat here looking forward to my Scotland trip. I'm sure there are lots of people having similar thoughts about how they might use a bit of time over the summer and what they want to do next year and stuff like that. So maybe, um, maybe your uh, ide- pet ideas in your head can give other people inspiration as well. So um, yeah, what's next for you? Um, well, again, again, it feels like a change of direction. I'm um, I'm writing an, another children's book that's taking up a lot of my headspace. Uh, th- this is the geekiest thing I'll say all day, but I'm ge- I've got ridiculously excited about the world of automated email letters. <laughs> you know yeah. those where you sign up for a message and then a few days later you get the next one. Yeah. A few days later yeah. you get the next one. Um, so I've started a new newsletter called living adventurously which is trying to get me in my head to articulate all these vague ideas that i have about how adventures about daring yourself to begin and then the attitude that you chase stuff with and how that might transfer to normal people in normal lives so i'm i'm really really interested in the the potential of trying to take the attitude of living adventurously into life um probably more than I am about going to spend three months in a freezing tent in Siberia anymore. So in terms of actual adventures, uh, I'm very much in the world of micro adventures these days, uh, climbing trees, swimming rivers, uh, and trying to seek a, get, get my adventurous kicks deliberately close to home. Nice. Love it. And I've just signed up to that newsletter as well. Um, so let's just finish with, if you want to sign up and connect with you and find out more, um, what do you want to direct people towards? Well, in my obsession towards productivity and busyness, I've spent about 20 years trying to make sure that if you type Alistair Humphreys into Google, uh, you should find me in whatever <laughs> avenue you want, so social media or YouTube or my blog, or my newsletters, this all should be there. If it hasn't, then I need to put more hours in in my shed being busy. Cool. Um, and I'm off to research the Mountain Bothies Association, which you told me about just before we started uh, recording. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, you've definitely given me lots of food for thought and ideas and lots of inspiration. Um, and I oh, hope it's well, been the same for everyone listening. So Alistair, thanks for being on Beyond Busy. Thank you for having me. So thanks again to Alistair for being on the show and um, we'll obviously be back in two weeks time with another episode. If you want to check out the show notes, just go to getbeyondbusy.com. So getbeyondbusy.com, you'll find all the show notes, links to all the stuff we've been talking about through the episodes. Um, so uh, go to getbeyondbusy.com for more of that. All the back episodes, all the ones that you haven't heard, they're all there. So go and have a look at that. And if you haven't subscribed, I'd love you to do that. It does really help. I know that's the kind of podcasting cliche, but um, please like and subscribe and leave reviews and all that stuff. It will really help to just spread the beyond busy goodness, the audio vitamins into your ears. So please go and do that on um, Apple Podcasts, on Google, wherever you are, like whatever you use for podcasts, go and like and subscribe and all that stuff. Cool. Um, Final couple of things to say. So um, thanks to... Uh, Mark Stebman, who's my producer on the show. You can find out more about what he does at Podient. And also thanks to Think Productive, who are our sponsors for the show. So if you want to find out more about productivity workshops, productivity coaching, bringing all that good stuff to your company or coming to one of our public workshops, then just go to thinkproductive.com. And if you want to find out more about a particular workshop, then you can just always email me, just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. And depending on where you are in the world, I'll forward that on to 
the right person as well. Um, likewise, if you've just got thoughts about Beyond Busy and what we're doing here and things that you want to share, um, I'm always keen to hear it. Uh, just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk on the email and also just at Graham Alcott on Instagram. I am not on Twitter anymore. I've just um, taken a step back from this. So you're still about to find my profile on there, but I'm not there. Someone else has my password and um, I'm enjoying a bit of a hiatus. There's a few, you will see a few tweets on there, by the way, which are kind of, um, when we put a podcast out, we have a little kind of uh, uh, automated way of doing that. So Caitlin in our, in our office does that, but um, that's not me. So I'm not there. I will not be answering Twitter at replies and DMs and stuff, but you can get me on Instagram and on email. So we'll be back in two weeks' time. I hope by then I just feel less polleny and coffee and spluttery and snotty and all that stuff and feel much better. So um, be back in two weeks with another episode. And until then, take care. Bye for now. Bye.